0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is Mike here, and for those of you that might be new to the show, every week myself and my co-host Josh sit down with inspiring people from around Columbus to talk about their stories, how they got to where they are, what they're doing now, and their goals for the future. And this episode is episode 171 of the show, and we were lucky enough to sit down with Evan Ryan, founder of Abundant Surge and Lead AI, and we really hope you enjoy this interview with Evan, and most of all, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares.
1: Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit found by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org.
0: Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a
1: cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to his clients they serve industries ranging from education to property management manufacturing fast casual and more if you want to check out more
0: you can go to gofmx.com. all right congress let's get the show on the road
2: you could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and i might get you know my head kicked in
1: I think there was a hunger in me, there was a desire just to make a
2: difference, there was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.
0: Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Evan Ryan joining us, and Evan is CEO and founder of Abundant Surge. Abundant Surge collaborates with businesses of all sizes to launch their moonshot, build new product lines, or automate processes, and their goal is to use AI to help you help as many people as possible. Evan has also recently launched Lead AI, which uses artificial intelligence to write newspaper articles, and they've published over 50,000 articles so far in over 20 outlets across the country. We're really excited to have Evan on the show to talk about everything he's got going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Evan.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for coming down and you know you mentioned you kind of spent time between here and Mansfield so glad you can make it out for this trip but uh, typically kind of one of the places we like to start is just take a step back talk about life before your current businesses so what led to being an entrepreneur what made you want to get into this type of a lifestyle all the way from like childhood to college and today.
2: Yeah so born and raised in Columbus and I was always really good at science I really liked looking at looking at problems and Trying to figure out how to how to best solve them. When I was in high school, I started to become more accustomed to people in developing countries and helping people who were who were poor, who were impoverished, people who were living off of less than ten dollars a day. Sometimes people living off of less than three dollars a day. And I spent a, quite a bit of time in high school uh, when I wasn't playing sports, doing doing community service, uh, both here and abroad, which led me to going into college, Ohio State. Go Bucks! To study neuroscience, I wanted to go to medical school. I thought, hey, the best way to the best way to help people is to go be a doctor, and so I might as well go study the brain. The brain everybody has one, so it's going to be a good field to head into. And we'll go be we'll go be a doctor. And I I have a, uh, a guidance report from my guidance counselor at Ohio State from one day before classes started my freshman year saying Evan does not want to be a doctor anymore, but he doesn't know what he wants to do. So my family had always been uh, pretty entrepreneurial. Both of my grandparents have their own companies. A couple of uncles have their own companies. My mother has her own company. And so I was raised in a family of entrepreneurs. And I decided that, hey, maybe the business world is going to be the place for me. But I never left the neuroscience degree for some reason. I thought that, hey, maybe maybe understanding the brain is going to be a good idea, maybe understanding how people operate at a very fundamental level, not in terms of psychology where it says, hey, here's kind of what people do, but we can't really explain it. Neuroscience saying, nope, these chemicals are happening right now in people's brains would be a good idea. In in college, I also helped run an organization called Buckeithon. Buckeithon raises money for, uh, Kids Fighting Cancer at Nationwide Children's Hospital. We had quite a bit of dancers. We had 4,000 dancers fundraising money to, uh, to donate to Nationwide Children's Hospital. In total, in, in my career at Ohio State, I believe we raised a little over $4 million for, uh, for Nationwide Children's Hospital. And then heading into, into the current business, I became an entrepreneur out of necessity. I went through 20 in-person job interviews at different businesses. Uh, I would always get to the final round interview where I'd be talking to the hiring manager or a series of hiring managers, and typically the way that the interviews went was I'd answer a whole series of questions, we'd be having this great dialogue, and then they would say, well, do you have any questions for us? And the first, the first question that I, would, uh, that I would ask is, so what's something that you believe to be fundamentally true that most other people disagree with you on? And if you've ever been in an interview with a hiring manager, that's almost always a showstopper i don't know for sure if that's the reason why i didn't get any of the jobs but to uh, to not get offered 20 jobs the only commonality there is me so i decided to start my own business because i needed cash right now i started a consulting firm we did not for profit we did social media consulting and we did a little bit of app development i say a little bit of app development because i did not actually know how to code at the time i had to teach myself how to code after i had sold the original app development contracts I sold them for free. I said, "You just pay me to maintain it after we launch," and that led us to today, where now we we build artificial intelligence for for businesses, for ourselves, with the goal of using AI to help people escape from poverty.
1: So, carry it back to that interview question. You said you think that was uh, possibly the thing, that, you know, the straw that broke camel's back. So. Would they not answer the question or do you think it was just a challenging question on them so they were frustrated about it or kind of dive into that deeper? What, what is the problem with
2: that question? You know, I don't know the answer. I've talked to plenty of people saying, what, what's your answer to the question, first of all? And secondly, uh, why do you think that that question wouldn't go over that well? And the, the common answer every time was that if a college student is is asking that kind of a question, they're probably so arrogant that you don't want to hire them. Uh, the jury's still out on if I am or not. But but typically, no, people would not answer the question. P- typically, people would take upwards of five minutes. It was a pretty long, awkward silence. Um, I, I've actually timed it a couple of times, so I guess the arrogance did come out. And it would be, hey, I, I, I'm not sure yet, or something that I would consider to be superficial.
1: Yeah, I guess I, uh, I might sense it is i might not love it (laughs) (laughs) if somebody asked me that and i
0: was i was the one doing the interview i could understand why someone might not Uh, but at the same time it isn't like i'm sitting here trying to think of something and i'm like i don't know if i'd have an answer for that question either
1: yeah it's definitely a struggle so you you carry it into you creating your own business you talked about selling it before you actually knew how to make it or started making it yeah um what did the sales process look like were you naturally good at sales and you just said hey i'm just gonna i'm gonna come up with some products and I'm just going to start pushing them and then I'll find out how to make them at, at the fact or how did that work
2: so first I wouldn't recommend selling something that you don't know how to build or make or produce or distribute
1: you wouldn't be the first entrepreneur that's done that uh-huh. we had uh we had a guy on here built I think it was a like hundred million dollar plus roofing company and he said he never never touched never, a roof he yeah, had no idea what was. Well, he might have touched it as he was creating a company but before right. that he had never had no idea how to build a roof he said he said First thing I did was sell a roof. The next thing I did was learn how to build a roof. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's pretty much what happened with me. People people came to me saying, hey, I need help with this. Do you know anybody? And I said, absolutely I do. You're talking to the person who can do it. Uh, and so it wasn't even an outside sales process. It was just people coming to me saying, I need a mobile app because we're looking to, we're looking to make mindfulness an integral part of everybody's life. And nobody likes meditating because meditating becomes m- more stressful for people most of the time. And I said, well I don't know anything about mindfulness and I don't know anything about apps, but let's shake hands and we'll figure out how to how to make this happen. Along with that, because it's a nice end to the story, with the with the first mobile app development customer as we were kind of discussing how it would work and before we were actually in an agreement together, I, I asked the question, what's something that you believe to be fundamentally true that most people disagree with you on? Uh, and the reason why I'd asked it to hiring managers was I wanted to work for somebody who, who I thought thought critically about the whole world, not just about their role. Uh, my intention was always to leave and start a company. But I wanted to be mentored by hiring managers who, who were really thinking bigger about what their company does inside of, inside of the whole global ecosystem. So we're sitting, I'm sitting here with my potential first software consulting customer, and which I was doing for free, and I guess my first software volunteer. And I asked that, and, and she said that mindfulness is accessible to everybody without missing a beat, and I thought we have definitely found the person to be working with so far because somebody has decided that they're going to answer the question with something that I had not heard before, I had definitely not thought to, to think about, and we went from there.
1: So how did things begin to grow from there?
2: Slowly. Uh, so it was about eight months of working every single day for free for about 14 hours a day because, of course, I had to, like, in order to be able to build a mobile app, first you have to learn how to code which means you have to know logic. And then once you learn logic, then you have to learn the actual fundamentals of the programming language, which is an entirely different set of skills. And then on top of that, mobile apps have user interfaces. That was a difficult thing to learn over and over and over and over again. And then you have to learn to distribute, you have to get it through Apple's app store policies, you have to do all these things. That took about eight months to, to get it to market. Um, we had some small side gigs in the middle where people were asking, hey, you seem to know a lot about technology. You seem to know a lot about AI trends. You seem to know about, a lot about how, how the world works. And it's not that I actually know a lot of things about technology. It's that one of the things that I'm really, really good at is taking really complex systems and making, and making them simple. And I'm really good at making sense out of a large amount of data, um, whereas most people, I, I don't think most people are. And so I'd have small little consulting side gigs here and there. Uh, we had started to, to build a little bit of artificial intelligence out of this ma- mindfulness application. At this point we had about 500 users, so it was still really, really small. And I was approached by, by a company who was working out of the same co-working space as I was. They were a newspaper and they said, we have a real problem because our business model is is becoming obsolete by the day. Programmatic advertisements don't pay us enough and we need to see if a computer can write newspaper articles. Uh, and from there, it, it took off a little bit like a rocket.
1: So they say they say that line to you, and then what is your thought process? I'm just going to do this myself. I'm going to find somebody else that can do it. I mean, did you know about artificial intelligence at the time? And what exactly did that mean to you? I mean, it's such a broad-stroking term that, that people use to uh, sell things these days. You know what I'm
0: saying? Yeah. I, think the, I think the confusion comes in because I think some people mix artificial intelligence with machine learning, mm-hmm. which are... Related, but not quite the same. So talk to me about, I guess what I'm curious about, because you said you'd done a couple of AI projects. What were those projects like before Lead AI? And then how did you take that, what you learned there, and move into Lead AI and building that project?
2: So Lead AI is actually a simpler version of artificial intelligence. So to define artificial intelligence for everybody, it's just a computer making decisions for itself. Mm-hmm. It's a human not controlling every aspect of what the computer does or what the software does. And there are subsets. There's machine learning. There's the new thing, deep learning. Uh, deep learning is like what Google does with with Google Search and with YouTube ranking and what Facebook did uh, with the news feed, which got them in trouble with the with the election. But artificial intelligence, at its very fundamental core, is just a computer making decisions for itself. In terms of hey, how did I approach? How did I approach a a problem like this, we need a computer to write newspaper articles, well the first thing I did was go and try to find if anybody had written newspaper articles using a computer before. Uh, because the problem, I knew how to do artificial intelligence because there was a uh, an open online course that I took and I was only compelled by it because in the first three hours of taking this free course, we were building state of the art algorithms to do, uh, to have a computer look and understand what an image, what's in the image. So I thought, well, this is really compelling because it's not super difficult. And so they, the new pa- newspaper comes to me. Could we do this? And like, we go, we do our research, find out the only people who have, who have really successfully done this. And this is successfully meaning the article reads like a human wrote it instead of it just being like a fill-in-the-blank Mad Lib. It reads like something a human would actually want to read. And I speak to a fill-in-the-blank Mad Lib meaning how boring is it to read a 700 word piece about a company's financial earnings call. Mm-hmm. Apple reported $52.8 billion and it's pretty much the same thing over and over and over again and so by the third sentence your eyes start to glaze over and then you click back and you ask what just happened in the last seven seconds of my life. The only people who had done anything like this really successfully were ESPN owned by Disney and the Washington Post owned by Jeff Bezos. I thought, well, this is going to be a difficult challenge. Um, On top of that, the thing that I needed, the tools that I needed in order to be able to build artificial intelligence, I sort of knew. I sort of didn't. I just knew the theory behind artificial intelligence. And I thought, I guess we better get started because the football season starts in seven weeks.
0: All right, Conquerors, we're going to take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called Columbus Gives Back. If you're looking for a way to get involved in your community, but you don't know where and how to start, look no further than Columbus Gives Back. By partnering with over 150 Central Ohio nonprofits, Columbus Gives Back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost, commitment, and hassle. Sign up for your first event today at ColumbusGivesBack.org. That's ColumbusGivesBack.org. Conquering Columbus would also like to take a moment to thank the 11th Candle Company. 11th Candle Company may be in the business of selling candles, but the social enterprise thrives on igniting hope. Employing women who have experienced human trafficking, 11th offers the resources to redeem, empower, and support them on their journeys to burn bright again. Every candle sold shines a light on an issue that often walks in darkness and provides hope to once-trafficked women on their path to redemption. Come pour your own candle of hope at Polaris Fashion Place across from the Apple Store or visit www.11thCandleCompany.com. That's www11 and that'll be linked down in the show notes. All right, Conquerors, let's get back to this episode. And so from there, so you get started and, you know, you've got a bit of a time crunch and you're, you're trying to build this out quickly. I mean, obviously, if, if the Washington Post and ESPN have done something similar, it's probably a race at this point. So what are you, what are like the, the first steps, right? You, I mean, after you, after you figured out like, okay, here's the tools, I have the tools, you just start coding, you start iterating from there mm-hmm. uh, until you get something that works, Um, Were there challenges early on?
2: Great question. The first steps were to hire people for the other projects that we had. Uh, The first steps were to find people who were scrappy enough to be able to do anything that we needed to be done because we had other projects that were going on, businesses that were being built either for us or for our customers, and make sure that those things were being held down while we tried to multiply our business again at a point where it should not be multiplied. We should only be focusing on one business because we're hardly profitable. So hired a couple of people to, to work on that. Now we're adjusting to going from a solo operation to being a multi-person operation. Um, on top of that, the first thing to find out if a computer can, can do anything is to find out if there's data available. Um, so if there's no data available, then we can't write anything because like what's there to write about? Uh, and it turns out that there's a company called ScoreStream. ScoreStream crowdsources sports scores. So what happens is, People go to the game, and they have this app downloaded, and they update the scores. The game is going on, and when everybody does it, then if you're really if you're really interested in high school football or basketball or really any high school sport, you can go on there and look and see what the other teams are doing. And so, like once you get that crowd effect going on, the service really starts to be valuable. And and so we were able to license access to their database. Uh, on top of that, it was we were working with a newspaper, and newspapers know better than anybody how to write content. And so it was, well, if we were gonna do this, how do you write content, and what are the things to look for inside of a inside of a football game? And uh, what are the key elements of a football game that make a game go from really exciting to really not? Or from a comeback to a blowout, right? What are the things about a football game that makes sense to football readers? If you can match the two things up, that's what we did. And so we were we were writing, admittedly poor articles, but we were writing articles four weeks after we wrote the first line of code, and yeah, the rest was the rest was kind of history.
0: Right, and it's it's, it's definitely an iterative process from there, right? Like you got to start somewhere. Of course, the first articles you spit out aren't going to be in the Wall Street Journal. No, uh, you know. Uh, so, what were some of the as you continue to go? What were the changes you made, and what were the adjust some of the
2: adjustments you made to kind of improve that quality well we had to make it a little bit more flexible and so uh, the difficult it's easy to write an article if you have a template the difficult part about writing an article is making it sound like a human wrote it on top of that making it sound like a human wrote it without offending anybody because when a computer is writing the content and publishing the content and no humans actually looking at it you don't know what your company published until the next morning when you get into the office. Because every game happens at 10.30 at night, or ends at 10.30 at night. Most people are asleep at that time. And so once we were able to put out content, it was really about, well, how do we make the content maybe funny? How do we make it more engaging? How do we make it more shareable on Facebook? I'm not looking for clicks by any means. I mean, most of these these articles were 150 words to 250 words. There just wasn't that much. We didn't have quotes from players. We didn't have quotes from coaches. Uh, At the time, we weren't even calculating team records. But it was, how can we make sure that the content is lives forever? It doesn't get old. Even if the game is five years old, it doesn't read like it's five years old. How do we make sure that our readers don't know that a computer is writing this article? That was the goal. If the readers cannot know that a computer is writing the article, then your journalists in the newsroom really are freed up to write other content. But if your computer is spitting out templated Garbage, then you have to have humans copy edit it. You have to have humans involved in the process. They're still awake at ten thirty at night, as they're adding a little bit of flair or a little bit of color into the article. And so it was really how do we how do we make it so engaging that nobody knows that a computer wrote it?
1: And then fast forward to today, how have things evolved since that point?
2: So once we figured out that we could we could do this because we were partnered with a newspaper, we ended up forming a third company called Lead AI. The lead is, the, is when you look at a Facebook, somebody shared a, a news article on Facebook, and there's a big headline, and then right underneath it, there's that like first sentence that's the lead. We decided, well, other newspapers need this too. So in the news industry, the problem with the news industry is that their primary revenue source got commoditized and they didn't realize it. On top of that, they were resistant to technology instead of embracing the technology. Now, what used to be was the newspaper owned the entire communication mechanism because they would print on pieces of paper and then people would deliver it to people's homes. They would like walk out their doorstep to the end of the driveway, pick up the paper and start reading it. The problem with Google and the problem with computers was that people had computers in their pocket and so they didn't even have to go to the end of the driveway. Oh, and by the way, Google was free instead of paying for a monthly subscription to your local newspaper. Google took all the advertising dollars because on top of the fact that they were digital, they were cheaper, they were able to handle more capacity, they were also providing better analytics on here's how well the advertisements were actually doing to the people you actually wanted to target to the customers. And so advertisers were flooding Google. This was before Facebook. Advertisers were flooding Google, and they were leaving newspapers. What happened was newspapers were too late to the internet game. When newspapers were too late to the internet game, they were forced to pay for Google ads or they were forced to take on Google ads. Now, the difference here is really substantial because a Google ad really well-placed, a page with three Google ads perfectly placed with perfect loading, nets $6 per 1,000 viewers. Whereas before, newspapers were charging $25 to $50 per 1,000 subscribers. That's an enormous difference. On top of that, humans started to get a little bit more expensive, right? Like the cost of living went up in almost everywhere. When humans became more expensive and advertising became less cheap, the ROI on an article became less. Now for a a high school football article like every outlet publishes on Friday nights, the article has to get over 600,000 clicks to return its investment. Nobody is reading about a high school 600,000 times. Right? And so what's been happening over the last 10 years is outlets are saying, we need to do less, we need to do less, we need to do less, we need to, uh, we need to lay off our team, we need to have more clickbait. When clicks are your, adver- are your revenue stream, you have clickbait, bait. Right? We need to get more people to this site because we need to optimize the $6. Because we paid 175 for a piece of content. Well when a computer writes it, the cost is one one-hundredth of a penny. And so could we distribute these pieces of content to other outlets so that one, two, three, four clicks makes the entire article profitable for a newspaper? On top of that, they can cover more ground. And so now you can sell larger advertising sponsorships, get back to that 10, 20, $30 per thousand viewer number, and make the newspapers profitable again without the clickbait. But instead of profitability by decreasing the size of your staff and decreasing your coverage area, it's actually profitability by multiplying the amount of content that you're publishing by a thousand.
0: So really, you're just leading to more coverage on these articles at a cheaper cost so that you can balance out that drop in advertising revenue and not have to hire more people to do that, right? And we don't want to lose those articles, so they're finding value. So are newspapers finding value in having those
2: available? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what's happening now is some newspapers are starting to experiment with, well, what happens if you have this coverage area and say your coverage area is uh, about 60 square miles and you start to publish content outside of your coverage area? So what happens if you're in Ohio and you start publishing Florida content? Right, because before you would never invest in something like that. It's ridiculous. But now that everybody has the phone in their pocket, they can they can invest in Florida and people from Florida are now signing up to read more content written by an Ohio outlet, they have no idea that the Ohio outlet not only didn't write it because a computer wrote it, but that they don't even know who played. The Ohio outlet doesn't even know what the articles are. But the Ohio outlet's making money on them anyway. Right? And the the Florida Reader, it's not like this is a, a lie or anything like that, the Florida Reader got exactly the information that they wanted and nothing more. On top of this, the outlets themselves, because most people think, well, AI is coming to take all of our jobs and, and uh, journalists are probably going to go first along with anybody who drives a car, uh, and it's totally not the case. Journalists are actually clamoring for the product. The reason why is because how many journalists have you met say, I can't wait to give up my Friday night in the middle of February when it's 10 degrees outside to go cover the local basketball game? Not a lot. Right? And so we're giving journalists their life back. They get to write about more interesting content that's more relevant to their readership, and we're covering a lot of the grunt work.
1: So how receptive have the people you reached out to sell this to been when they've heard about this technology?
2: Pretty receptive. So uh, when we initially published our press release, um, a group called Neiman Lab, and Neiman Lab is where, is where journalists go to read about journalism, reached out immediately looking for more information. Facebook reached out immediately looking for more information. We had 50 inbound newspaper outlets coming to us saying we need to use this, we need to use this yesterday. Um, and then everything kind of went haywire when Mark Cuban tweeted about it and we were just kind of like, uh-oh. And so now newspaper groups big, having over 100 newspapers and very small being one three-person shop. Are all, looking for the, are all looking for the service, mostly because it frees them up to do things that they really want to do. It's not taking anybody's job. It's not taking anything away from their expense sheet, really. It's just allowing them to, to do more things that they want to do and not think about the cost of doing business less. It's making the cost of something that was, true, was previously expensive, but you had to do anyway. If you're a local, local newspaper, you have to cover the, the sports teams. But they didn't really want to do it. It's taking that cost and it's turning into a profit center for them. And it's been really exciting to see how well they've how well they've adopted it.
1: So, what does the team structure look like today, and what are the goals for the future?
2: So, the team structure: we have a team of seven working on it right now. One person has been on the is in the newspaper content side. He's the editor. He's been an editor of I believe over ten newspapers in his 40-year career. Uh, we have a publisher who's been the publisher of I think over three newspapers in the last 20 years, Um, and then it's technology behind that. And so, me, my team, we really are on the tech side, uh, but the decision makers are actually on the newsroom side. Our customers are newsrooms. Uh, The people who need to do the sales, the people who need to really understand how to be most empathetic towards, towards our customer base and towards how the product needs to be are the newsrooms. In terms of in terms of future product plans, in terms of what are our, what are our goals? Our goals are first to help newspapers not have to write about game recaps. Uh, after that, after that we'll see, but we can't speak to future products yet.
1: Have you raised any funding or anything for, no. for that company?
2: No. In fact, I've never raised funds for anything, uh, and it's not a function of the fact that I don't want to. It's that I didn't feel like spending the time doing it. Whether or not that's a good strategy remains to be seen. I have less hair on my head because of it. But, uh, no, we never raised any funds for it. It was bootstrapped the whole way. Well, Hopefully that continues. Um, you know, and I think it's a good place to kind of pivot mm-hmm. towards. A couple of
0: our last questions of the show, one of them yeah. just sent around. You know, we got a lot of listeners out there that, young professionals, entrepreneurs, people thinking about being entrepreneurs. You got any advice for them based on what you've experienced so far?
2: You know, I was, I was been thinking about this quite a bit lately. Over half the battle is just showing up. And so for, for people, primarily people who, who want to be an entrepreneur, but they're either not there yet or they're still in, in a 9 to 5 or anything else like that, my recommendation is, is show up to be an entrepreneur in all the time that you have when you're not working your 9 to 5. And as soon as you can cover rent, leave. One of my, one of my coaches, his name is Dan Sullivan, he, he says that your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is searching for. And one of the things that I've noticed happens is when when people do finally take the entrepreneurial step, they decide to either leave their job or they they start the business or they do whatever they do. It's amazing how the world conspires to help them succeed. And so my recommendation is is purely show up, enjoy the hours, like the long hours from 9 p.m. to midnight or 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. when you're kind of grinding it out and then you're still going to your nine to five. But as soon as you take the step, everything's going to be way more, way easier. That's great advice,
0: and uh, you know, I've an Our last question of the show mm-hmm. centers around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. And that's live uncomfortably, and without telling you too much about why we chose that for a podcast about entrepreneurs, what do you think of when you hear the phrase? How does it apply to your life and career?
2: I think your business is a reflection of you, but you are not necessarily a reflection of your business. The reason why I say that is in any time that I've ever taken a large step inside of the business or we've ever done something that was really bold or really risky or we like bet it all uh, on some investment that didn't look like it had any return but it just felt right, uh, the business was a reflection, was a reflection of me and who I was at the time. The flip side of that, of course, is the drawbacks to my business because there are certainly some problems going on in my business right now, um, as there are in every business those are also steps that I have personally yet to take. And so while the business may not reflect me, I reflect the business every single time. Because if I haven't taken a step or if I've misstepped, that's what the business looks like. And so in the the phases of growth, every phase of growth for the company is also a phase of growth for me and growth is inherently uncomfortable. Perfect. Well, Evan, well,
0: thanks a lot for joining us today. Really appreciate you telling your story on the show. Josh and I both enjoyed talking you. had a lot of fun, so thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks a lot for tuning in. That was Evan Ryan of Abundant Surge and Lead AI. You want to learn more about his companies, check out the links down in the show notes. And again, appreciate all you guys tuning in every week. Hope you enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts... With Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit
1: founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org.
0: Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX.
1: FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more